Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at the province's energy future as BC copes with continued cold temperatures. As BC calls for more power generation for later this decade and Alberta barely avoids rolling blackouts, we discussed whether this weekend was a reminder that a zero-carbon energy future will not be easy or inexpensive. And following the UK and Australia's lead, the Federal Immigration Minister admits our international student program is out of control. What took so long? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, the weekend Arctic cold snap led to severe freezing, burst pipes, and a huge demand for BC hydropower. In fact, the peak hourly electricity demand, the hour that customers actually use the most electricity, uh, reached a record level on Friday night when it reached 11,300 megawatts. Now, Friday night's consumption was more than 30% higher than the previous Friday night. Um, now, before the new record was set on uh, on Friday, the previous record was just under 11,000 megawatts, which was set... Uh, in December of 2022. Now, even with this record set, uh, record-breaking demand, BC didn't require imports from the market and also had enough generating capacity to provide support to its neighbours, of course, uh, here in Alberta and, of course, the Pacific Northwest as well. Here's a BC Hydro spokesperson, Susie Reeder. She spoke to our Jill Bennett earlier today. Take a listen. With our careful planning, um, we were able to not only meet that domestic demand, but also uh, help out in Alberta. So our hydroelectric system has about 12,000 megawatts of capacity, plus we have um, a bit from thermal as well and a small percentage from fossil fuels. On Saturday, we provided 200 megawatts, and on Sunday, we provided about 480 megawatts to Alberta. Now, next door, of course, in Alberta, the Alberta Energy Systems Operator actually issued another grid alert for the province this morning, the fourth in as many days, but before it was uh, promptly ended with the operator uh, chalking quick relief up to wind and solar generation. Uh, as uh, Susie Reader there said, uh, BC Hydro exported 200 megawatts to Alberta. Energy Minister Josie Osborne was uh, speaking to our Simi Sarah earlier today. Uh, t- uh, take a listen to her comments. It's important to understand some big differences between BC and Alberta. And first of all, we have this large hydroelectric system that really has the backbone of our energy system. So that makes us very resilient and able to integrate intermittent and renewable sources like wind and solar into the grid more easily. So we can take advantage when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining, but then at nighttime or when it's not windy, we've got this big hydroelectric system that backs us up. And that's effectively like a big battery. And it's firm and reliable power. So you combine that with the way that we trade energy and import and export at the right times, and British Columbians can continue to depend on the reliable electricity that we see from BC Hydro. Uh, that was Energy Minister Josie Osborne speaking to our semi Sarah earlier today. So were we just lucky or did BC Hydro plan well? Joining me now to discuss the issue is Rob Shaw, Czech News' political correspondent who has been uh, covering this issue. Rob, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz. Thanks for having me on. So uh, I know you were to call him on this issue uh, just recently. Walk me through what happened in regards to BC Hydro, in this case, being prepared uh, for this past weekend. 
Well, you heard the sort of energy minister there talking about how our dams and our reservoirs uh, for BC Hydro act is like kind of a battery. Mm-hmm. And that what hydro tries to do throughout the year is buy power when it's cheaper on the market so that it can use that and preserve uh, some of the water that it can then draw on later. It sort of charges up the dams. And then in a, in a huge emergency, it can even send water through in a kind of inefficient manner, uh, supercharging those dams to get more power out as well. And that's kind of that backbone of our system that you heard the energy minister talk about. It's one of the reasons why, you know, um, the new Democrat government, which opposed the Site C dam project, which is coming online next year, eventually got their minds around the idea you can't just transition to renewable power um, without that backbone, or you end up in the position of Alberta where the wind wasn't blowing, so their wind farms weren't going. It was nighttime, and the solar farms weren't there. They they were firing all of their uh, coal and, and gas-powered plants, and they had nothing left. And so they had to choose to, to you know put out that alert and then import uh, some power, which we sold uh, to them at the super premium. So that's kind of the main difference, and it's one of the reasons why I think we're in the position in BC where we're able to to put that call out as the government is now talking about, well, we'll create some more small independent power projects, but without the backbone of the dams and Site C, uh, we wouldn't be able to kind of plan throughout the year to to make sure that, that hydro can have what it needs when it needs it. So it, it, the fact that they did what they did and it paid off in this case, could we do this every year then? Is this going to be a plan for them to do in the near future in regards to perhaps purchasing at this point until they get more power uh, with this call for power, which is probably going to come very soon. Is this something that's going to be a regular thing in your mind for hydro? Well, hydro does it all the time. Uh, They just don't, we don't really pay any attention to it. It's got a whole arm called PowerX where it's kind of like the stock market trading of energy. And they've got these very, very highly paid people who buy, you know, low and sell high and, and make a ton of money. Usually hydro is backstopped and its rates are kept low by the money made trading energy uh, like that. But the difference in the last year we had is, is there was a drought, a uh, record-breaking drought. And so hydro was even more, I think, conservative about preserving some of that damn water for periods that it was going to need later. And that's the question going forward is if we have droughts, and not just the drought we had, but the kind of re- continuing effect of it, because um, the, the worry next year is that with an early, um, you know, kind of freezing and a lower snowpack, we didn't recharge, uh, you know, the water basins across the province. And so we'll have a rolling drought. And if that continues to happen, then hydro has less water, has to buy more. And I think the concern, the long-term concern for hydro Mm -hmm. is that drought combination combined with the fact we know, and hydro's admitted, they don't have enough power in the future for all the electric cars for all this um, heat pumps, for the vision of the future that the NDP has where everyone is on electricity to the extent they can, hydro needs more energy uh, to power that. And so we're, we're kind of in this period now where they really have to find ways to generate more in the future or all that trading uh, isn't going to be able to keep up. It's safe to say that uh, Site C, which is our, significantly over budget, uh, close to completion, but significantly over budget will be, and I think it's the the, the numbers they're pushing out is that it can power 450,000 homes or 1.7 million uh, electric vehicles once completed. You can't do both. You got a little of both maybe. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, uh, 
It's safe, is it safe to say that Site C will be our last major hydroelectric dam in this province in regards to just public sentiment and the debate that went on before it was built? Yeah, I think logistics-wise, it probably will be. And, and, you know, the government reluctantly continued to build it. And I think they are happy and glad that they did. But uh, it's hard-pressed to, to get through the kind of environmental concerns and the and the um, the massive logistical undertaking that it is to build another dam. And so you're, you're going to see, I think, the government pivot hydro to this new power call, which is going to be smaller scale, local solar, wind, maybe even geothermal, um, uh, you know, projects that will supplement the dams and the dams will stay the way that they are. That You don't hear hydro talk about building another dam. That's just, we've kind of reached our... I think, uh, political and logistical ability to do that. But we have an incredible advantage in what we do have compared to Alberta and compared to other provinces. And so that, um, that without that, without building Site C, you know, I think we'd be in a really tough position to, to chart our energy future. So give New Democrats credit, I guess. They campaigned against Site C. They promised to get rid of it. They stuck with it when they looked at the numbers and realized it kind of made sense, and they're able to reap the benefits of it now with a climate plan that relies on that power coming online in 2025 and uh, and a whole new uh, you know kind of renewable power as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a challenge. The the hydroelectric, whether you debate debate hydroelectric power or not, the, that that's done now. And moving forward, I think the energy policies that we have and what what we focus on is going to be very challenging, whether it's wind or solar or, as you say, geothermal, hydrogen, whatever it may be, is going to be a lot of talk, a lot of debate moving forward. But uh, this will probably be, as as I think you said, and many others have said, that uh, this will be the last uh, hydroelectric dam for this province, that's for sure. Rob, thank you for your time. Okay, take care. The way BC courts decide who gets to keep a family pet after a separation or divorce is changing today as amendments to the province's Family Law Act come into effect. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the change is Rebecca Breder. She is an animal rights lawyer. Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Hi, good afternoon, Jez. Good afternoon. Lots to talk about here. Uh, These changes to the Family Law Act, uh, what do they mean? What do they say? Oh, I'm so excited about this because it's the first of its kind in Canada. Uh, so we're the first province to do this. It applies when a couple separates and under the Family Law Act. So if they're going through a divorce or uh, for a common law couple. And it's the first time that there will be specific provisions dealing with companion animals and who decides how the court decides who gets the dog and cat and and certain provisions dealing with the best interest, which is really, really phenomenal. And so what I mean by that is, first of all, in in my cases, I've long argued that pets, yes, we know that technically they're considered property still under the law, but I always argue how we need to consider them more than just a chair, right? More Mm -hmm. than just like the desk that you're sitting at. And courts have agreed with me in the past, and they've agreed that when we're considering uh, who gets the dog or cat, and maybe both people uh, continue to share the animal after they separate, Mm -hmm. that we have to think about the best interest of of the companion animal. So that is now enshrined in law. 
in British Columbia under the Family Law Act. So, in the, and so one would assume if a judge has to, uh, you know, take into consider all of this in regards to what you've said, let's just say one spouse, they, uh, there's a couple are separating, getting divorced, one spouse purchases said pets, let's say it's a dog, but mm-hmm. the other, other uh, spouse uh, ends up taking care of the, the dog, uh, glow, grows very close to the dog, perhaps spends more time taking care of the dog, would that, that would play a, uh, that, there would be some consideration for that mm-hmm. by a judge when they have to make a decision in regards to who would get custody of the pet. Yes, definitely. So sometimes people think, oh, well, I bought the dog, so I get the dog. Well, no, it's not as simple as that. Mm. Sometimes, depending on the judge, yes, it could be as simple as that. But more and more, what I'm seeing, at least in in my own cases and how I argue them, is that judges are looking beyond the black and white type of stuff that you could prove on paper. Judges are looking at who spent time with the animal. Did anyone abuse the animal in any way, neglect the animal in any way? who really took care of the animal. You know, it's one thing to say, well, I bought the dog. It's another thing to say, well, I'm the one who actually booked the veterinary appointments, who took care of the dog, making sure that the dog not only gets a a bowl of water and kibble, right, but walking the dog, making sure that the dog is thriving. And that's what we always want, is we want animals to thrive, not just just to exist. But what I should clarify is that This Family Law Act applies at the Supreme Court level. That's our mid-level court in B.C. And in in my cases, a lot of the times we actually take these pet custody types of disputes that they don't settle, that is, at the small claims level. Hmm. And that's there are two separate legal proceedings. And one unfortunate thing in this legislation that is coming out and in force as of today is that the Supreme Court, if it's at the Supreme Court level, a judge does not have the power to order shared custody of of an animal unless there was an agreement before that. And all you're asking the judge to do is enforce an agreement. But if you're asking the judge to order shared custody without there being a prior agreement, Mm -hmm. then according to this legislation, you're not allowed. However, that said, in small claims, and I can only speak from my own experience, I've had cases where I've successfully argued that shared custody is allowed at the small claims level. So because small claims has a jurisdiction to deal with these disputes, and that's one of the changes under the Family Law Act now, it's enshrined in law that provincial court does have the power to deal with these issues, shared custody may still be possible, but only if it's at the small claims level. How, so there's lots of layers to this. Yeah, but. absolutely. It's, it's not certainly not black and white, but how common <laughs> is it where there, where the dispute for the, for the pet uh, is significant whether where where it ends up going into you know it extends the litigation it may go to a higher level of court whatever it may be like how common are or uh, do pets how, how common does the dispute over pets uh, occur that you see in law like is this a common thing? I could easily say that even in just the last couple of years it's at least twenty percent of what I do and that's just me. Twenty percent of my uh, of my legal animal law practice is dealing with pet custody disputes. So, and not everyone gets a lawyer. Not everyone calls me, right? Mm-hmm. And and there are people who resolve things on their own, but it happens quite often. And I could tell you that these types of disputes, the pet custody disputes, are just as 
emotional and just as litigious as those involving children. And I could see that some people are like, oh, come on, like you're going to waste court's time fighting over just a dog or just a cat. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say it's a waste of court's time. I'm going to say quite the opposite. It's certainly not a waste of court's time because for many, many people, like what we talked about last week, you and I, for many people, companion animals are family. They're family members. Hmm. So if they're going to fight over custody, over children, human children, people will and are fighting over the custody of their companion animals, as they should. I mean, of course, we should settle Mm -hmm. (laughs) if we could, but if not, there's no reason why someone shouldn't take this to court and have the matter resolved that way, because it's a super important issue for people. Uh, We've often on this show, I've talked to you and others about um, other legislation, whether it's in Europe and the United States, uh, treating animals, especially at home, as sentient beings. Uh, You and I have Mm -hmm. had that conversation. With this new uh, change to the BC Family Law Act, where uh, it, does the conversation go now in regards to other potential changes in your mind that, that, that you see coming in the next few years? Well, I do think that even though under this legislation, animal, it doesn't change the status of animals in the sense that they're still considered property. But I do think that it pushes the needle forward in the sense that we're seeing an evolution in how legislation and courts are seeing animals more than just property. And we're headed in the direction that animals are not just property. They're not just a chair, you know, or a piece of luggage. They are sentient beings. And so while the legislation itself right now does not use the word sentient beings, the the way that the fact that the best interest of companion animals now has to be considered, it's not may be considered, it must be considered under the legislation, shows that there is an overall care Mm -hmm. for animals under the law. And I think that's moving us closer to the whole sentient being status down the road. Rebecca, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much, Jazz. Extremely cold temperatures over the weekend across BC drove peak hourly electricity demand. That's the uh, hour customers use the most electricity. It was driven to a record high level on Friday night when it reached 11,300 megawatts. Now, despite the record-breaking demand, BC didn't have to uh, require imports from other markets and they were able to provide support to Alberta and, uh, and the Pacific Northwest over uh, the, the the weekend. That includes about 200 megawatts, which was sent over to uh, Alberta. Now, certainly a rosy press release came from BC Hydro today. Of course, it didn't mention the challenges before the utility. BC Hydro had said they will issue a competitive call for power in the spring of 2024. Uh, before then, BC Hydro is conducting extensive engagement to gather input from First Nations and, and independent power producers on how they will approach the need to acquire 3,000 gigawatt hours per year of of power. That's a lot of power. Uh, this, of course, uh, means the request for proposal will officially launch at the beginning of April, April of 2024. Now, what uh, happened this weekend certainly caught the attention of uh, Premier David Eby. He was very uh, supportive of what happened and regrets of providing power to Alberta, but he also talked about what BC Hydro needs to be doing moving forward towards a low-carbon uh, future. Take a listen to what the Premier had to say earlier today. What we have encouraged BC Hydro to do uh, is to plan for increasing demand for electricity in our province. Uh, we have major energy project proponents like Fortescue uh, coming to Prince George 
to say they want to open a green hydrogen plant using BC electricity is a massive economic opportunity for Prince George. They need 1,000 megawatts of power to do the, the size of project they want to do. They are one of 19 green hydrogen proposals for our province. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity for us if we can scale up our power. Uh, and as you can see, BC Hydro can deliver uh, in a crisis, and I'm grateful uh, for them to be able to do that uh, with our neighbours in Alberta and Washington State. Uh, but there are way more uh, advantages that we can derive from our low-carbon electricity here in British Columbia, uh, which is why we've done the first uh, power call with BC Hydro uh, in, uh, in a long time uh, for renewable electricity, 500 megawatts, uh, and uh, why we're expanding our northwest transmission lines to deliver more electricity to different places in the province for heavy industrial use. That was Premier E.B. speaking earlier today. Of course, this is all occurring as construction of Site C continues. Once completed, Site C will provide 1,100 megawatts of capacity, uh, and that would be enough to power the equivalent of 450,000 homes or, and I emphasize or, 1.7 million electric vehicles per year in British Columbia. You can't do both, folks. Uh, that's all I'm trying to say here. Uh, but certainly, uh, many have argued that it may be the last hydroelectric, uh, major hydroelectric uh, uh, project in our province. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about this issue is Richard McCandless. He's a retired senior BC government public servant. Mr. McCandless is also an intervener in the uh, BC Utility Commission's reviews of BC Hydro and ICBC's rate requests. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jeff. Lots to talk about here. Uh, I was very curious with what was happening over the weekend and, of course, news out of Alberta and their challenges. What was going through your mind as you were watching the news and, and hearing all that was happening? Well, it sounded a little bit like uh, we're having our Texas up in Alberta, but and they were having problems a couple of winters ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I read about it, uh, Alberta had a series of problems that all occurred at the same time. They had a couple of natural gas plants that were down for maintenance. They had uh, no wind for a couple of days, so their uh, wind turbines weren't producing electricity. And uh, they were right up at the edge, and so they had to put out an alert. And luckily, the people in Alberta cut back on their usage, and then they, uh, Saskatchewan was able to help them out, and BC apparently sent 200 megawatts, but we don't know for how long. That was an hour, a day, or we don't have any idea about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving forward, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, there's going to be a call for power by BC Hydro. Um, from what you have read, and I know you follow BC Hydro very closely, um, your sense of where we're headed, is this going to be smaller hydroelectric plants? Or are we going more towards wind and solar, uh, geothermal? What's your sense of where you think hydro is going? Oh, it seems pretty clear that most of it's going to be wind power. Um, the small uh, hydro, also known as Run of the River, um, that was pretty much taken care of in the last two or three calls. And uh, and those are, they have their benefits, but they also uh, don't provide power uh, in certain times of the year, either in the dead of summer or in the dead of winter, they tend to be producing power in the fall and spring when we have a lot of participation. Mm-hmm. participation, And uh, so they have limited usage. Uh, so I think it's mainly going to be wind and uh, perhaps some solar as well. Uh, before, and there's going to be skeptics of both, and I understand that. Wind's not always there. The sun doesn't always shine. That I understand. But can we meet, in your opinion, our 
uh, energy needs with a growing population, significantly growing based on immigration levels. At the same time, as you've mentioned many a time in your papers, uh, huge demand from the industrial side, uh, whether it be LNG, whether it be other projects that are being proposed, the Premier hinted at that as well. Are, are we going to be able to meet the needs of the British Columbia of, of, over the next 10 or 15 years that is emerging? I don't think so. Um, the Listening to what Premier Eby said, I mean, he sounds like someone who's looking to October for the election and trying to be uh, giving all things to all people. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be choices. There has to be trade-offs. Um, I put a paper out back, and I think it was August, about it's going to be a lot more expensive and more difficult than is what we are led to believe, especially by the environmentalists and by some of these politicians. Um we are lucky in BC. We have our hydro dams. We have our reservoirs. Mm-hmm. Um, they act as like large storage batteries for power. Um, we have hydro has a, about 98% of their power is coming from uh, hydroelectricity, and, and we're we're lucky that way compared to places like the Saskatchewan and Alberta uh, that don't have that hydroelectricity. Um, so we're, we can pat ourselves on the back about <clears throat> being green, but um, it also is um, <clears throat> high risk to have all your eggs in one basket. Mm-hmm. We don't have diversification. So w- when you say you're skeptical, um, it, you know, when you look at uh, wind farms, you see them in Alberta, you see them all along the West Coast in the United States, uh, solar as well. Many have talked about solar's costs coming down. Why are you so skeptical of, of wind power or, some, or even just a, that green transition? What, what, what to holds you back? And I'm sure you obviously know very well about climate change and all those things. You see, you see it, you follow it. What, why are you so skeptical? Well, I'm not skeptical of the change. I'm skeptical about the price. Mm-hmm. I mean, the uh, notion is it's going to be reliable and affordable. And, uh, and the, we keep being told that. But um, intermittent power is not reliable. So it has to be backed up. And where there are not reservoirs, they have to use things like batteries and things to, to have extra power when it's needed, um, when the wind's not blowing or the sun isn't shining. Mm-hmm. Uh, we here, again, are lucky we can... Um, basically refill the reservoirs with uh, wind and solar if necessary um, and then use it later. But um, it comes with a major cost. Uh, It's to to put in all this new power that the premier seems to want to to use um, our our green electricity to produce green hydro. I mean, it's, uh, sorry, green hydrogen. Mm -hmm. It, It has... It raises a few question marks. Do you think and we do have these other demands, as you say, mm-hmm. um, especially with compressing uh, natural gas to liquid natural gas and exporting it, which is going to help reduce carbon in other jurisdictions. Um, but that comes with a huge cost of electricity to do that. Now, Richard, as you and I have been speaking a couple of hours ago, we learned that uh, um, Capital Power Corporation from Alberta um, it wants to work with Ontario Power Generation in regards to potential nuclear energy for the province of Alberta. Uh, this is also in the last little while. They want to build a, a new first nuclear reactor by 2035. Speculative, lots of conversation in and around that. Could we ever do and have that conversation in British Columbia, have that conversation about perhaps going 
the nuclear route? Well, I think we need a conversation about our whole planning for our energy future period. Mm. Uh, We've been far too reliant just on the government of the day and BC Hydro um, saying what it shall be. Um, The... And the government of the day, and, uh, and the premier had said this not too long ago, is not going to consider nuclear. Um, it should be on the table, especially with these smaller nuclear reactors that are kind of in test mode right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other thing that needs to be on the table is natural gas. BC has lots of natural gas, and it can be used if we can uh, do proper carbon capture mm-hmm. to generate fairly low cost electricity. Uh, far, far cheaper than building a site C. Um, and that doesn't seem to be on the table either. And all we're talking about now is wind and solar. Geothermal is not on the table yet. Uh, I don't know how big that might be in BC. There's certainly possibilities. But we seem to be not being allowed to, to look at uh, the full spectrum of alternatives. And uh, If we learned anything from the drought, which is uh, actually still continuing Mm -hmm. or may continue for next year as well, uh, we cannot be as reliant as we are currently on hydropower. Um, It's it's, uh, turning out to be unstable if we're looking at a drier, warmer future. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in your mind, is this just a case of where we're we're, uh, lunging too quickly to a green future and instead perhaps reassessing and saying, we want to get there, but it, it is perhaps a longer journey and we still have to have stable energy along the way. This is the question of maybe we need to slow down a little bit in regards to that energy transition. Yeah, I think so. And I think that we've got to bear in mind, and I think the politicians will do this, uh, looking at what happened with the reaction around um, carbon tax, mm-hmm. um, that... Um, it's all well and good to put this on paper, but when it actually hits people's pocketbooks, there's a reaction. And um, people in Alberta certainly are not going to be too happy with their facing blackouts because of um, federal rules around trying to eliminate fossil fuels from electrical generation. Um, it, it, it just it doesn't seem to be in proper balance. It seems in many ways, as I listen to you, that the low-hanging fruit of decisions are done when it comes to energy in this province. And, and we've made some, you know, some big things that we've done in regards to hydroelectric dams that we built across this, this great province, as are we, which we have done. And at the same time, we, you know, have some of the lowest electricity rates. But one would argue now we have to be a bit more serious in regards to what route we wish to take and how fast we need to get there. Yes, definitely. Um, we've, you know, we've got to give credit to the uh, previous generations who uh, pushed ahead with the dams on the Peace River and, and other dams related to the Columbia River Treaty. Um, we've been living off that for two or three decades at least, maybe more, mm-hmm. maybe five decades. Um, but we now have to get a little more serious than we have been about about uh, where we're going in the next couple of decades because the the plan that Hydro put out even under their accelerated scenario, says we've got to have got to acquire about fourteen thousand up to twenty thousand more gigawatt hours in the next uh, ten years. That's a huge amount of power, uh, and it might be more than that if if uh, the government goes ahead with this uh, hydrogen plans mm-hmm. um, and all the uh, L 
LNG plans. Um, One would assume somewhere, somewhere along the way, these projects have to fall off. There's no way we can power all of them. The, the huge demand. Not in, just for, not in the timeline that they're looking for. Yeah. I, I, I just don't see it. One more large LNG plant, a hydrogen plant. That's a lot of energy. That's probably Site C, all this power that Site C would produce, never mind just the natural growth in homes and oh, it's, people. It's in here. three or four site seeds. Yeah, um, it, just, it just wouldn't, it, it can't happen. So, Richard, I always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for your time today. Look forward to having you on the show again today. We're working on an energy series for, for late March. I look forward to having you on the show at that time as well. Thank you so much. I'm just going to plug my BC Policy Perspectives blog uh, if people want more information. And it, so it's just, it's just BC Policy Perspectives, if they just Google that? Yes, that's it. All right, I'd highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Richard. If you're just joining us, we were speaking to Richard McCandless. He's a retired uh, senior BC government public servant. He spends a lot of time uh, watching and studying BC Hydro. We just had a lengthy conversation about uh, the energy transition and how BC Hydro and the BC government, more importantly, needs to be looking at all types of energy as we make that transition because it is not a straight line. Uh, we spent a lot of time also talking about the fact that BC Hydro, um, I think it reached uh, 11,300 megawatts of power on Friday night, the highest ever. They, of course, also also uh, did provide support to uh, neighboring Alberta and the Pacific Northwest. Well, they're not the only utility that did so. So did Fortis, BC. Joining me now is Doug Slater, Vice President of Indigenous Relations and Regulatory Affairs at Fortis, BC. Doug, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, well, let's get to the, the issue of this weekend. Uh, give me a sense of the power demand that uh, uh, Fortis had to deal with and talk to me a little bit about uh, the support you provided in Alberta as well. Uh, for sure. So, you know, the cold weather over the weekend saw our customers' demand uh, for energy rise uh, substantially. And so before I jump into the numbers, though, I really would like to recognize the utility workers in B.C. across Fortis B.C.'s gas and electric utilities, Pacific Northern Gas and B.C. Hydro. These folks really do work tirelessly to ensure that customers stay warm and receive the energy they need when it is cold like it was this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And to that end, uh, Fortis BC's gas system did set a new record on January 12th. Uh, our peak hour system-wide delivery uh, peaked at approximately 21,763 megawatts of equivalent energy. Now, that's about 2% higher than it was last winter. And to put that into perspective, that's also about double the energy provided by the electric system. So, yeah, I just want to stop there. Uh, in, in the introduction, I said 11,300 megawatts on Friday night, which is a record for BC Hydro. You're saying the Fortis BC natural gas system delivered 21,763 megawatts. That's correct. Wow. That's a huge difference. Yep. That is a huge difference, and we, we also saw um, uh, near-peak levels on our electric system. So Fortis BC's electric system also reached a peak on January 13th at about 818 megawatts. That was a little bit less than last winter when we set an, our, our record on December 22nd, 2022 at 835 megawatts, and it was just a little bit milder uh, than it was last year's conditions. Is that a regular thing that Fortis does in regards to supporting other regions uh, when they need a power? Um, I would say that um, the more common on the gas system as the gas system is, uh, you know, our gas system is much larger. It's inter- interconnected with the Pacific Northwest. And, of course, we cooperate with other utilities 
you know, as energy needs come up and um, as support is needed. Mm-hmm. Same can be said on the electric system. You know, whether it's restoring uh, electric infrastructure following a fire or, or supporting other utilities, um, we all work together to make sure that uh, customers stay warm and uh, they have the energy they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to touch on another issue that occurred this weekend. I was reading Van, uh, uh, Von Palmer's column in the Vancouver Sun on Saturday. That's in regards to uh, your company wanting an expansion of your natural gas service in the Okanagan. We all know uh, the Okanagan is growing very quickly, significant amount of people moving there, uh, like a lot of regions, but obviously a very uh, popular part of the province. Uh, you had applied, to my understanding, for a 30-kilometer extension uh, to your natural gas line to deal with um, the significant growth in that area, uh, to my understanding, it, it was said that uh, without this expansion, uh, you could exi- uh, sort of exhaust your existing network within potentially two winters from now. So you do need to add greater capacity for that region. That was turned down, to my understanding, by the BC Utilities Commission uh, because of our climate uh, plan here in our province. What happens moving forward now in regards to that application? Well, we were we were obviously very disappointed to receive the BCUC's decision denying our Okanagan capacity upgrade project. And of course, as you as you summarize, that project is all about providing increased capacity to serve these peak winter events in the Okanagan region like we just had this past weekend. And, you know, that that region has experienced quite a bit of growth uh, in in population and we're seeing uh, an increase in energy needed for winter months as a result. Um, But, you know, in proposing this project um, and and despite the decision, we we do believe that this is still a very important project, even though it wasn't approved. Um, We are going to be considering the BCUC's feedback and the alternatives that we have to ensure that we can continue to meet customers' demand in the region. Uh, including in the, you know after you know in the next couple of years and thereafter, um, but you know we were really encouraged to see that the BCUC did agree with us that there is an immediate capacity shortfall in the Okanagan that does require a solution. So it, it, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but if if they're acknowledging what you have said that you, they need more capacity in that area and they're not giving you the go-ahead because partially of uh, the government's clean bc plan will you have to restrict services to okanagan customers when it comes to natural gas based on this ruling well as part of the decision that the bcuc made we will be developing and have been ordered to file a revised plan to meet capacity uh, including over the next few years and thereafter that's going to be filed mid-year and you know we I would say that the the simplest way to describe it, Jazz, is that the BCUC uh, agreed with us on the that that there is a short-term capacity shortfall, but they didn't agree on what the solution is. And so they've asked us to come back uh, and search, uh, uh, propose other solutions to meet the need. Mm -hmm. And and, and I understand where you're coming from because ultimately it's their decision, not yours here. And you just have to answer the question here. But when you say we're going to have a shortfall potentially two winters from now because of the tremendous growth in the Okanagan, we are asking for a 30-kilometer extension of the line to add greater capacity to meet the needs of businesses and everyday people for natural gas. The Utilities Commission says, well, we have a clean clean BC plan and uh, we cannot allow you to move forward. Can you find a new way to move forward? But to move forward is to increase capacity. I'm trying to understand what more you as a company can do when the obvious solution is increase capacity. 
That's right. And I think what the BCUC was asking us to do, Jazz, was look at if there are other ways to increase capacity in smaller uh, in smaller amounts. And so, you know, the their concern was over the long term that the clean BC uh, policies might, um, you know, cause a peak demand to abate or even decline over time. And so what they're really asking us is, yes, we agree that there's a, a, a capacity shortfall in the short term, but come back to us with some uh, options that are, are perhaps a little bit uh, more smaller or modest than what you've proposed initially, because we're concerned, they're concerned about um, the long term. Now, we, we believe at Fortis BC, again, that this is a really important project and that, uh, you know, we will be putting forward that plan and, and proposing options to meet the demand, because we certainly don't want to be in a position in a couple of years' time, uh, unable to meet that uh, customer demand. In our elected officials and our public institutions' zeal to go green and to eliminate fossil fuels, do you think, whether it be this particular decision by the Utilities Commission, in Metro Vancouver and other communities like Nanaimo, there has been a push to get rid of natural gas completely? Do you think you're up against uh, uh, this force that, even though you may make sense uh, in the near term, in the medium turn in regards to providing energy for a growing province that you're up against forces that you really you know can't fight back on in this case elected officials or in this case even uh, a public agency like the utilities commission telling you yes we know you need more capacity but you can't build it i mean how do you as a private company in this case let me reiterate this 30 kilometer line is going to be paid for up 327 million dollars will be financed entirely entirely by private money Uh, how do you as a company move forward and do business in this province well, I think it is definitely challenging, but I think most people would agree that the electric system cannot shoulder all of this demand. Um, if we look at what we experienced this past weekend, the cold weather that we had, um, it would really require the electric system to triple. That would include, you know, the equivalent uh, generation of about 20 Site C dams plus the transmission and distribution infrastructure to deliver that equivalent energy, even before you got to things like electric vehicles. So this really demonstrates the, you know, the real important role that gas has in, in our energy needs in BC and that it will have that role for, for a long time to come. But with such an important role, we are also very focused on ensuring that we progressively lower emissions associated with gas use through introducing renewable gases to our system and investing in energy efficiency improvements for our customers. Doug, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jazz. This weekend, uh, the federal immigration minister, Mark Miller, uh, had an, uh, conducted an interview with CTV's question period. And lo and behold, uh, what did he say? He says that the federal government has lost control on immigration policy. Uh, in the case of Toronto, by the way, uh, they're adding about 20,000 people per month uh, to that region. Uh, significant numbers, of course. Uh, now, this all comes uh, about a month after the UK and Australia both acknowledged that they had also lost control of uh, the amount of students coming into their country and also on big immigration numbers. In fact, in the UK, they said they wanted 
around slash their immigration numbers from 672,000 to 300,000, essentially halving them. Australia is saying the same thing in regards to international students. Uh, and uh, just recently, the National Bank's uh, economist Stéphane Marion at Alexandra Ducharme also said that the staggering population growth is stretching Canada's uh, absorptive capacity. Uh, they're not the only chief economists uh, for a variety of banks who have spoken up on this issue that is having a significant impact. Now, here in Canada this year, we're expecting about 485,000 immigrants to come to this country, 500,000 expected next year. That, of course, doesn't include the amount of international students and temporary foreign workers that come to this country. That's well over another million people, and that, many have said, has been the issue. But the fact that uh, our immigration minister this weekend, Mark Miller, acknowledged that we have lost control on immigration policy, being the federal government, I think says a lot. Joining me now is a good friend of this show, is Barge Dahan, co-founder and director of the Canada-India Education Society. Barge, welcome once again. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yes, I, I'm almost going to have to give you co-host credits very soon. We have you on so much. But, I mean, it's it's an issue that we need to talk about, and I'm glad uh, the minister acknowledged it. Your thoughts, first of all, on the minister actually saying this week, and it's, these are strong words. He says the federal immigration policy, and sorry, the federal government uh, specifically, has, quote, lost control on immigration policy. Those are pretty strong words. They are, and absolutely the federal government has lost control, uh, particularly the international student portion mm-hmm. with, you know, staggering numbers of uh, students are coming into the country. Many are ending up in private institutions, where especially in Ontario and in British Columbia in the last 10 years, the, the number of private institutions have multiplied many, many times over. And, um, and the federal government uh, does not have a good handle on what percentage of the international students are actually in these private institutions that are offering six-month programs or year programs. And then there's really, after that, there's really no future for these students to get permanent jobs here. Mm-hmm. And that leads to other host of problems. Why do you think our government has been going down this route? I mean, one only has to look at when you allow that many people coming into the country in such a short period of time, it's going to have an impact on housing. It's going to have an impact on commuting. It's going to have an impact on our healthcare system. I just had Adrian Dix here uh, on this show uh, last week at this time, talking about the significant growth. I think we had over three hundred thousand plus uh, people in the last two years who have joined British Columbia's MSP. Uh, we have significantly more people relying on healthcare as well. Why do you think our federal government has been going down this route? What do they know that we didn't know? I think there are two things going on. One is the federal government. The second is the provincial governments, particularly in British Columbia and Ontario. Starting about 20 years ago, there was this big push being made to privatize post-secondary education. Hmm. And then the post-secondary private educators moved in, started building their programs, and, and the push came from them to allow more and more international students in. Then you had the COVID impact. I think the federal government was scared that Canadians are not going to return to work. So let's bring in more international students who become cheap labor. And then all of the restrictions on international students in terms of how many hours they could work in a week, those were lifted. From 20 hours to basically 40 hours full time. Well, actually, in reality, if you go, you can drive around in Metro Vancouver. There are international students 
working at two, three jobs, and they're working 80 hours a week. And many that are in private institutions, they're not focused on their studies. They are here to work, and they're hoping they're going to stay here one way or another. The other thing, so I think a lot of it is motivated by concerns around the GDP is not growing. We're not becoming more productive and efficient. And the federal government keeps on touting that international students bring in anywhere from about, you know, 28 to $32 billion into our economy. Uh, let's talk about the first issue. You talk about, you know, public sector and private sector schools. How much of this do you think has to do with the fact that international students pay more? And the argument has always been, well, they subsidize the local student. Uh, and then private institutions or public institutions have become so drunk on that money to the point that it's now literally subsidizing our public system that if those international students went away today, the entire public education system would be very close to post-secondary institution system would be collapsing in regards to just budgets. You're absolutely right. There would be many number of universities and many community colleges. These are publicly funded bodies. Mm-hmm. They would be at risk of collapsing. In British Columbia, we have Kwantlen College and um, um, the uh, Langara College here, Kwantlen Polytechnic University and Langara College. Mm-hmm. They, uh, international students make up anywhere from about 35 to 40% of their enrollment. And, and they are at risk. They're relying on international students. In Ontario, you have community colleges where upwards of 90% of their operating budget comes from international student fees. Those are shocking numbers. So what has happened is Canada's respected, world-class, publicly funded post-secondary education system has been put at risk by the federal government and our provincial governments by allowing this massive number of international students coming in. And And the provincial governments either capping or not increasing the grants that they give for domestic students to the, these institutions. Hmm. And I think we, we've done one segment on that where I, I think it was this year that uh, the amount of dollars coming from international students into the public college system in Ontario will uh, be more than what the provincial government puts into the college system. So that's how drunk we have become collectively as a society on international students subsidizing our public system. You brought up the issue of Langara and Kwantlen uh, University. Um, I have a report here from the British Columbia Federation of Students done a few months ago. Uh, and for a four-year Bachelor of Business Administration, or BBA, uh, the cost for Langara, for an international student's international tuition, would be $61,000, or roughly $16,000, sorry, $66,000 per year, for four years, which roughly about $16,000 uh, yearly. And for Kwantlen, uh, it comes out to eighty. Uh, sorry, $93,000 for a four-year degree for an international student, of which that means 23000 per mm. year for this international student, uh, compared to what you would pay locally would be significantly less. So you can see when you got 30%, 35% of your student body that is international student, and they're paying rates like this, 
you can see why the system becomes uh, so heavily reliant uh, on these international students. Um, you and I were talking during the break. Uh, you said you had uh, saw a report or you saw some story, and, and most of the international students, let's be honest, comes from China and India, yes. predominantly India recently. In the last little while, I think India, the last couple of years, has surpassed every other country. But you were looking at a report, I think it was out of the Indian Express newspaper? It's in the Indian Express, and the, this is a study done by three re- researchers from the Punjab Agricultural University. Uh-huh. It's a first of this type of study ever done in Punjab on immigration. And the study uh, was undertaken in 44 villages, 22 districts, and I think they looked at about 9,000 households. So what the study concluded is that um, for 43% of the families that want to get their kids out of India, destination is Canada. Canada is number one destination. Every family has had to sell assets and borrow money. The average student to get a student permit is spending between thirty and $40,000 just to get the permit to be able to come to Canada. Okay. And there are many who are coming illegally, and they're spending well over $50,000 a year just to be able to come to Canada. So that cost would be immigration consultants, travel, everything? Uh, the study did not clarify that. Yeah. I'm assuming that would include... Uh, recruiters, their fees, immigration consultants, and this is all unregulated in India. And it is highly unregulated here in Canada as well. And these are, uh, at the end of the day, working class, poor families trying to get their kids to Canada. And that's a lot of money. The study did uh, uh, outline or highlight that uh, more than 50% of the students coming out are from low economic, uh, uh, economically uh, capable families. Hmm. So it's the poor, and the poor are having to sell uh, their, their assets. And when the kids come here, they're vulnerable to fraud, abuse, and all of that, which, we, which is going on. Welcome back to the show. I'm talking to Bart Dehan, co-founder and director of the Canada India Education Society. We're talking about Immigration Minister Mark Miller acknowledging uh, our immigration system has lost, uh, that the federal government has lost control of our immigration policy. Uh, you know, this all comes after the UK and Australia both acknowledge they're heading in the wrong direction as well and have already announced that they're going to cut back significantly on immigration, not just students, but immigration itself. Uh, here, we're not sure what it looks like. Uh, Barge, I'm very curious. You know, if we're letting in a million students a year, what does a a reset in our immigration policy in your mind look like? We're still allowing 485,000 people to come to this country in 2024. 2025, it hits 500,000. But add to that, of course, temporary foreign workers and students. Now you're over a million, million two. How do we fix this system? What's the reset in your mind? Well, the other thing that we have to add is the refugees and the asylum seekers. There's probably another 100,000 there as well. Hmm. The one other thing that we don't know is how many students or what percentage of students when their visas, when, they, when their study permits expire and their temporary work permits expire, how many actually stay, continue to stay here mm-hmm. underground and what percentage actually goes back to their home countries. What does the reset look like? I personally, you know, I have read many reports. Uh, different people have different perspectives on it. I think, you know, the, the Im- immigration levels at $500,000. Let's assume that's the number. Yeah. Maybe Canadians can live with this. 
It's the international students and the temporary foreign workers. That number is too high. If there was a reset, I think it needs to be done over a period of time. If you do a cut of 50%, many institutions are going to go under. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm not too worried about the private sector ones, to be very honest. I don't think most of the public would care. But our public sector, probably colleges, public sector colleges, it's not even university. It's the colleges I worry about that become so reliant on that international student dollar. It's colleges throughout BC. I think we have uh, 11 or uh, 12 uh, publicly funded colleges. I would say good half of them would have difficulty keeping operations going if all of a sudden students stopped coming. If there was a cut of 50% over a period of a year to two years, maybe that's enough of a transition period to scale down and manage. What we really need long-term in terms of education and so on is more provincial investment in our public institutions. We need to strengthen our public institutions and not be relying so much on international students. Yeah, it's a problem that started many years ago, but it's just, it's become something government's also been addicted to, which is they're paying more, it subsidized the system, let's keep it going. And now it's on steroids and we've completely lost control. And so I hope 2024 is the year that we finally are able to turn things around. Arj, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me here. Republicans officially kicked off their presidential nominating process uh, today. Republicans are in a fierce competition as they've crisscrossed all of Iowa's 99 counties ahead of today's caucus. Prominent Republicans have made extensive uh, uh, efforts to court uh, Iowans, uh, but going into the caucuses, former President Donald Trump, uh, many have said, was maintaining a substantial lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and also former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Here are some of their comments over the weekend. Some people uh, have underestimated the extent where there's fluidity with this. You know, someone's like, yeah, you know, I like Trump, but so give him a reason to support me. And that could be the difference. So I think you're going to see some fluidity in the caucus sites itself. The caucus will be uh, filled with a lot of great people. I say, if you're single, you'll probably meet your future husband or wife. You can't sit home, even if you vote and then pass away. It's worth it. Trump, among other things, uh, says that you're not tough enough to be president. How do you interpret that? I find it comical because when I was at the UN, he always used to tell people, don't mess with her. She's tough. And look, I was tough as a governor. You know, I took on, you know, whether it was like passing the toughest illegal immigration law in the country. Everybody that's ever worked for me or worked with me, no one ever questions my toughness. He's saying this because now he knows he's in trouble. Well, it looks like the results have been coming in, and I'm just looking at some news reports, and uh, to my understanding, Associated Press says Donald Trump has won Iowa's lead-off presidential caucus there in Ottawa. Joining me now to talk about the issue is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, have you uh, hearing the same? Uh, yeah, most of the major networks, uh, along with the Associated Press, have called uh, the the night for Donald Trump. The, the question here, Jazz, is going to be how much is that margin going to be? No Republican contender has ever taken more than 41 uh, percent of the vote. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of votes that need to be counted. So we'll be watching for that. Uh, this ultimately now makes it uh, a race for number two. Second is going to be incredibly important in that state. And I think now that Trump has been declared winner, 
the shift goes to, is this a race for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis to lose? If uh, Mr. DeSantis uh, doesn't uh, uh, place in second, uh, what does this mean for his campaign? Well, I mean, the, 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 the Florida governor has spent millions upon millions of dollars uh, in this state uh, campaigning, even though some of his super PACs have uh, you know, seen some departures and they've had financial issues. He has put all of his eggs into um, one basket. He has next to no support uh, in, in New Hampshire. So Iowa is crucial for DeSantis. If he doesn't win this, um, you know, knowing full well that he is likely going to come in a potential third in New Hampshire, um, you know, eyes will be on South Carolina. We understand that the governor's campaign is already eyeing South Carolina. He heads there tomorrow after the vote today. Um, but if this is a if this is a, a, a third place finish for DeSantis, um, you know, some people that I've talked to in the Republican circles have said this could essentially be the end if he's in a second place finish. The question will be, what is the margin to Donald Trump if it's too wide? Again, does that send donors from uh, from DeSantis to another camp? Uh, does And what will it mean for Nikki Haley uh, if she ends up in third place, potentially? Many have said that, look, she could be the establishment candidate. Brothers said that, she, you know, she has to place well uh, here. A third place finish, what would it mean for her? Um, a third place finish for Nikki Haley, uh, you know, will be disappointing to her campaign. But again, it's going to be what the numbers are. Is it closer to Ron DeSantis if he's in second place? Is it far off? You know, we have to wait to see. But remember, when we head into New Hampshire uh, in, a, in about 10 days from now, um, Nikki Haley uh, has the gov- has the endorsement of Governor Chris Sununu in, in, in New Hampshire. So, you know, there may be a bit of, uh, you know, of a number shift between Iowa and New Hampshire. But ultimately here, a third place for anybody uh, is ultimately going to be concerning. You, what you said just a minute ago, Jazz, is that you know Nikki Haley was considered the establishment candidate. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a comment that is now um, being flipped around. In that Republic, the old school conservative Republican doesn't really exist anymore, and Donald Trump and his Republican Party is the new establishment, and that's based on some of the exit polling that CNN had earlier tonight, Jazz, showing that more than sixty percent of those asked believe that. Joe Biden is not the legitimate president in the United States. That is a signal of what the new establishment Republican is. Um, For Donald Trump, who uh, has significant amount of charges against him, uh, has a lot of time in courts. uh, He's already spent a lot of time in court and has more time to spend in court. Uh, What's his game plan moving forward? He hasn't showed up to a lot of – I don't think he showed up to any official Republican debate. He hasn't had to. And yet here he is winning decisively many believe. Uh, What's his game plan moving forward? I mean, look, he has a good ground campaign. I I mean, Donald Trump participated not only in no debates on the Republican side here, but in very few actual events in Iowa until the last uh, week and a half or so. He's he's essentially been missing in action, leaving it to the the surrogates to go out um, and work the circuit throughout Iowa. But again, I think that speaks to where the Republican Party is now. He is the establishment. He has the name. He has a record. And he has a, a mantra that people believe and buy into. Um, and, and I think what he's looking at down the road here, despite the fact that he's facing these legal challenges and he's turned them into a bit of a campaign opportunity, um, you know, he's going to be looking at Iowa to see, number one, did he flip suburban voters? Number two, is he able to pull in moderate or independent voters more so than he did uh, in 2016, uh, in 2020, 2016, obviously he lost the state of Iowa to Ted Cruz. So his, his game plan down the road could shift based on what his numbers are by the end of the night, but nothing is standing in his way, um, including 
another court case, which is set to take place in New York City tomorrow. There you go. Well, it's going to be an interesting 2024 uh, with a few more races, of course, and of course, the big show later this fall. Reggie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.